0: You know, there's never a good time to make a personal project. Like, you're never going to have the time. I work best when dates are booked in out of my control and I just have to commit to it and I make it work. And that's basically just where it started. I just felt it just had to be done.
1: Less than nine weeks. That's how long it is until the first Way Up North wedding photography event ever to take place in Stockholm. It's pretty exciting. We're at speaker 8 of 10 in this interview series now and uh, this week we'll listen to Cole's talk with Australian artist Sam Blake who lives in New York City these days. We'll hear her talk about her take on wedding photography, about the documentary she's been working on for a long time now uh, that'll be released later this year, and uh, about her cats that keep her boyfriend happy while she's traveling, and a lot of other things. This episode of the Way Up North podcast is sponsored by Code Hustle. Code Hustle is a company run by a couple of wedding photographers on the east coast of Canada. And their goal is to create tools that help uh, photographers spend less time in front of computer screens, all while still providing the ability to produce higher quality products and services. Coden Hustle is the business behind two main products, Batch Plus, a tool that's basically Photoshop batching on steroids, uh, and the product that we personally couldn't live without, Storyboard. I still remember when we used to make blog posts by manually dragging photos into Photoshop and trying to make them the right size and getting photo combinations with the proper space between them and whatnot. Those days are long gone with Storyboard. Uh, With the most recent Storyboard, you got dead simple drag and drop features to make creating blog posts a lot easier. And there's a killer SEO add-on for getting the image keywords right. We've supported Code & Hustle for a long time now, and uh, we're truly happy that they'll be with us in Stockholm later this fall. If you haven't tried Batch Plus and or Storyboard, you can download them from the Code & Hustle online store at a 10% discount using the code North 10 in one word. That's from their online store at www.codenhustle.com. The code is valid until the end of September. Anyway, back to Sam. Here is the talk with Sam Blake, just back in Brooklyn after a trip to Australia, and uh, just before she was off to the Faroe Islands in July 2015.
2: Okay, Sam Blake, how are you?
0: Good, thank you. How are you, Carl?
2: I'm pretty damn good. Where are you?
0: I am at home in Brooklyn, New York.
2: Are you in between, uh, in between travels at the moment?
0: I am. I just got back from Australia and I'm back in town for a few days to shoot two weddings and then I'm heading off to the Faroe Islands to shoot a wedding next week.
2: The Faroe Islands. Have you ever been to the Faroe Islands?
0: No, I haven't. I've been to Iceland and I love Iceland so I'm pretty excited to go there.
2: They're like cousins, the Faroe Islands and Iceland they say.
0: Well, the, the groom for this wedding I'm doing is Icelandic, and then the bride is from Faroe Islands, so it should be an interesting wedding.
2: You'll send the ne- You'll set the next trend, then. Everyone's going to Faroe Islands after they see whatever you do there.
0: I don't know. There's another photographer attending uh, traveling there next week, and I'm like, oh no, it's going to become the next Iceland.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I've done a few of these conversations uh, with the other presenters who are coming to Stockholm, but you're, as far as I know, you're the first documentarian.
0: What does that mean? You made a movie. Yes. Kind of, yeah. I guess I did.
2: So, why don't you do the elevator pitch about uh, what you did?
0: Sure. Uh, so, I've just finished making a documentary about a 98-year-old man, Australian prisoner of war survivor from World War II, and he just has the most amazing story that I just felt so compelled that needed to be recorded uh, and shared. And so about four years ago, I started on this project. It was just completely passion project, personal project, and it turned into a lot bigger than I ever imagined and a lot more money than I ever imagined. And pretty much for the last three to four months, I have been in lockdown trying to actually get it finished, So I've been working on it full time in the editing phase for the last four months. And... I mean the very, very, very final stages of just like fixing up uh subtitles and some audio stuff, and then it's done, so it's an amazing feeling to think it's almost finished
2: so a project like that like a like what I know about you is you you're a big advocate for for like projects and you know doing things outside of your core business, so passion projects for you. You've probably done quite a few of them in the past, I'd imagine, but this is a big one. Like this is four years of your life you've invested in it. So with a passion project, how do you like, like, like what's the defining moment that you felt where you were like, okay, this is worth the humongous effort that I'm going to invest in it. And like how's that feeling different than little things like oh, I'm gonna go take pictures of this family or make a, a smaller project so like this is big so I'm curious what is like what was the defining moment that made you say I have to do this?
0: Uh, I remember it was Christmas day in 2011 and I was sitting around my family dinner table and uh, my dad's been a crucial person in making this project happen as well because He's been, like, the carer for Harold on these trips. And he was telling me that he was going to take Harold back to Burma to find his grave sites. He was just doing it purely, you know, to help a friend out that, you know, kind of kick off some things off his bucket list. And it was just like, this needs to be recorded. This can't just go by and uh, not have his story told. And... It was just I felt so compelled in that moment, Uh, and I'm like, I'm doing it. And the dates that they decided to go to Burma was, like, I had a wedding in uh, Perth. I was living in Melbourne at the time. I had a wedding in Perth in Australia uh, one Saturday, and then I had a wedding in New Zealand the next Saturday. And so I had to just commit to doing this, like, to travel to to Burma or Myanmar to – um to be part of this project basically. So it was huge stress. <laughs> uh, uh trying to like you know, there's never a good time to make a personal project. Like you're never gonna have the time. Luckily, like I found I work best when the think dates are booked in out of my control and I just have to commit to it and I make it work and sacrifice sleep and all common sense um to doing these sorts of things and um and that's basically just where it started i just felt it just had to be done and i i felt like i was the person to do it because i have access to harold
2: so when you okay so it start, it stem from a, a brilliant idea because it sounds like a brilliant idea for a documentary but once you get past the brilliant idea, were you? Did you boil things down to the numbers? Like, were you like creating a business plan, and you're like, okay, the numbers add up, so this is a financially viable project? Or were you doing this purely out of like the motivation that if nobody ever saw this, you'd still be okay with it?
0: Yeah. So yeah, second second response. Uh but he didn't even come into it, business plan, and come into it, I don't expect to make a single cent from this and that's not what it's about um it's like I studied social documentary photography that was kind of my focus when I was studying photography at in university and it was always the photography I wanted to do and to be brutally honest I never wanted to be a wedding photographer I always wanted to be working on like I wanted to be a war photographer and then you know my final weeks of studying I shot a wedding and all kind of headed in a different direction, I guess. So to me, it was like finally getting back to a place of the the photographer I really wanted to be. So that was part of the motivation, is that it was something outside of wedding photography that I would prefer to be doing. Um, But another thing I've also learned about making documentaries and all of that is there's there's no profit in it. It's purely people that make documentaries it's generally all a labor of love. It's never about making money. I think everyone whoever is a documentarian is just so compelled to tell a story uh, and so much care and love for the idea of the documentary that it becomes such a labor of love.
2: So what did you what did you learn about the like the process of making a documentary like that you didn't know before you started?
0: takes a lot longer than you ever ever imagine, imaginable um but when I first started the project it was just going to be purely a photo series and then I started to record some video and some audio just because you know he was telling stories and that and then I was like this is such more of a powerful project if there's audio and there's video to it um you know photos can only say so much and there's so much history to this story that you know really needs so much background information so that's where it kind of came in you know it was an afterthought really it was it was always going to be a photo project but then it turned into a documentary um so yeah and then I guess through the precept of what I've learned is it just takes so much money and takes so much time but so fulfilling and so worth it just to like Push my skills out of what I know, and I've never been so uncomfortable in my life in making this, and that's been really rewarding.
2: What, like, what is uncomfortable about it? Like, I've, I don't know. Unless you actually create a documentary, that sort of insight is not like you can't Google that feeling of uncomfort. So, like, what, what were some of the things that you experienced that were uncomfortable?
0: Uh, I guess the the biggest thing I felt was so I. I paid. I did a two-day workshop with a production company, where I sat two days with like a producer and editor. Before I, this was earlier this year, and he ripped me to shreds. He critiqued my work, um, just, and I felt like that. In when I he was like ripping me to shreds, it was always in a very, you know, nice manner. But I just noticed how defensive I was getting, and it kind of reminded me what it feels like to sometimes be a newer photographer and you have no idea what you're doing. Um, I felt like I was the new photographer again and just that, like, cause I I teach and I mentor photographers and I realized I was going to the same place in defensiveness and I realized you don't really learn from that when you get defensive, that you should just be open-minded and they're telling you stuff for a reason that what you are doing wrong. Um, Or thinking about things in a different way than what you have been doing so to me I guess it was just like I was such a feeling of being a student and not knowing and getting critiqued uh, and getting criticized that was really tough because in the wedding industry it's always
2: rainbows and butterflies
0: yeah like no one barely says a bad thing about anyone's work and you know I don't I kind of like not when anyone says any bad things about my work. It's nice when I just get all the rainbows and butterflies. But so it was something that I hadn't experienced in a while—is that sort of critique and criticism—and it was healthy for sure to have that and that perspective.
2: So when you first like we were, we kind of just went right into your documentary because I'm very interested in that. I can't wait to watch it. But backing up a little bit, um, when you first got started with wedding photography. And you photographed that first wedding. Did you did you go into it with the same level of unknown as you did with the documentary? And were there like some parallels there?
0: Oh, for sure. Uh, my first wedding uh, was in two thousand and three, and it was all film. And I had no idea what I was doing. Everything was on P mode, and I managed to somehow put my timestamp on in on the camera. So I delivered all the wedding photos with a timestamp which was totally classy. And uh, so, yeah, completely oblivious to what needed to be done. I just, I didn't even look at any wedding photos before I shot my wedding first wedding. I was just like, eh, $500, yeah, I can do that. It was pretty for money. Um, didn't look at anything before I shot, shot a wedding. And um, I could look back on the photos and obviously there's a large majority of Terribleness. Um, it's don't really Um But then I can also see there's parts of that wedding I still would like. I'm sure you know, like I still see a bit of me in it. You know, rather than just cluelessness.
2: So that was in 2003. <laughs> and to go back a little bit further, like where are you from? I know you're Australian, but uh, where in Australia are you from?
0: I am from a small little town called Albany in Western Australia. Uh, It's at the very bottom uh, in the Great Southern of Western Australia. It's a town of about, when I was living there, maybe about 20,000 people. It's gotten a little bit bigger, um, but still small. (laughs) I grew up feeling very isolated from the world. Perth, that's the place's capital is five hours drive, and that's classified the most isolated city in the world. Really? um, Yeah.
2: That's a fun little fact.
0: Yeah, so it's quicker to fly to Indonesia than it is to any other part of Australia, like other state.
2: Okay, so like when you were growing up in in Canada, I grew up in a very small town, like a very small town, and we have a lot of rednecks there. Did you have the equivalent of the rednecks?
0: We have what we call bogans.
2: So were you a bogan? (laughs) No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so, no, well, well, I asked that jokingly, but but I'm curious, like like what were you like growing up? That that was like kind of where I was going with that.
0: Yeah. Um. So it's definitely a country town. It's on it's on the coast, so it's a surfing community as well. I was definitely the weird kid. I think I. Oh, I. You know, kids in country towns do silly things when they're young like getting up to mischief at a very young age, which I'm very guilty of. Um, My parents tried to steer me away from that. So they actually sent me to a hippie school, kind of like a Montessori or Steiner school, but a bit different. And so my primary school was in the bush and we didn't wear shoes. Uh, we didn't have a classroom structure. We never learned anything out of a book. Wow. So, so it was really cool.
2: That's that's really yeah. interesting.
0: Science class was like learning how to sail a boat and make a fire and all of that.
2: Well, I don't know if it sounds more like the school of practical stuff rather than a, a hippie school. It sounds like, that sounds great.
0: Oh, it was an awesome, awesome childhood. Uh, I only did that for like the last part of my school and that was when I was kind of going off the rails and my parents were like, They'd send you somewhere else. Um,
2: so off the rails in your like, are we talking your teens here?
0: Uh, Eleven,
2: twelve. Oh, okay. Just, so like,
0: smoking cigarettes and um, shoplifting, yeah. and.
2: <laughs> so at the around that time, did you like? I mean, that's pretty young. So maybe like through when you grew up a little bit more, and when you're getting into your teens, like what sort of things did you see yourself doing, like? When you graduated high school, did you think, I'm going to be a doctor or I'm going to be a rock star or whatever? Like, what did you sort of see yourself doing?
0: I was going to move to Vancouver, actually, when I was 17.
2: What? I had an
0: internet boyfriend. um, And I was going to pack up my life in Australia and move to Vancouver and be with him. And then all of a sudden, common sense struck me and uh, realized that I was going to be 17 and not be able to get a work visa. Uh so I applied for uni at the last moment. Um.
2: Uh, oh okay. wow. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So uh I actually wanted to be an art therapist. That was my first preference, I an, think. An
2: art therapist? Yes. So what is I don't even know what that is.
0: Um I remember just looking in the book, I'm like, oh that sounds cool. I'll do that. Uh <laughs> okay. I think it's like, kid, troubled kids, I guess, you help them, or even adults, I guess, you help them express themselves through art. I think that was the basis of it. Okay. But at the last minute, like, I think an hour before, we had to have our, basically how you apply for university in Australia is, you bring up this, like, phone line and you put in your preferences, like, codes to the courses you want to, Put in as a preference. Yeah, sprang up within the last yeah hour and changed it to photography. Oh wow! Um, so I had like yeah, it was like you have to decide your whole life in this you know when you're seventeen you kind of feels
2: sort of. So you went to art school then?
0: Yes. So I uh, yeah I studied photography and journalism as a at a school of communications.
2: So, um, okay, like it just kind of connected my head. Like did. You, were you looking at people like James Natchway, the the, the war, I, I don't know if I'm saying his last name correctly, but the war photographer James Natchway and, and those types of photographers and you were like, okay, I want to be a war photographer, so I'm going to go in that direction. Like, were you, you, th- you were thinking that even at that time?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Because uh, that's like what we would, like my photography tutors, the lecturers, they were, it was de- very much a fine art Slash social documentary course, or that was their interest, so that's what they taught. So all the photographers I first got exposed to were those guys, and my mind was like blown. And I just always wanted to travel the world and get the hell out of Western Australia because I thought it was the most boringest place. Um, and to me, they just seemed like such an exciting life, and and to make a difference as well. Like I was feel compelled to tell stories and, um, you know, try to change people's perspectives in some way about the world and that.
2: So when, when you were doing like art school and you started to have these people tutor you and you were kind of learning the ways, do you remember like a specific project maybe that was within social documentary that, that you did and you kind of felt like, okay, there's some achievement here, some, you know, I feel good about this and I want to continue doing it. Was there a, a first thing that you remember?
0: Yeah, it was my final year, so third year of study, and I kind of feel like I had an epiphany one day, or something just clicked, and I finally got photography in the way I see photography today. Like, it was just a click of a perspective or something, and I, so, like, for our sort of, like, thesis or final project, uh we had to make a photo book and I made a series of my book was called Southern Beauty and it was actually a a series about the struggles that my little town faces as teenagers. Oh, wow. So at time uh, a lot of friends or friends of friends were killing themselves in car crashes, drink driving, um and all of that, so I basically pulled all my energy into telling the story of my little town. Like it would just seem to be going through so much tragedy, um, and I did really well in that. My teacher, I knew he knew that I had just clicked. Like I had my little epiphany uh, and he he really was encouraging in the, the way I was shooting because so I was like. I, don't know, I think when you're starting out you get so influenced by all these other photographers and then all of a sudden you realize i was doing my own work like finally doing something pure to sound like and that was really encouraging so I, I stopped trying to take photographs like i just took photographs of things that felt something to me and was emotional because it was such an emotional story and rather than being trying to be a cool photographer i was and it was a change of perspective in as well in the way I shot because it became emotional rather than trying to be the cool photographer wow that's
2: that's that's fantastic that makes very that makes a lot of sense and i bet a lot of photographers wish that that epiphany would come on to them somehow i guess it it just kind of happened in a very natural way because you cared so much about the subject maybe
0: yeah so i think for me I I am such an emotional shooter, like that's where obviously my wedding work comes from a lot, Um, and to realize that I, who I am as a photographer and what is actually, what actually interests me and what doesn't um, in terms of content in a photograph, like I want something that moves me and at the end of the day I don't really care too much about, I do care about light and composition, but to me, it's more because light and composition creates emotion as well. But it's more about the subject matter yeah. uh, and what's going on on their face, or that that means more to me rather than thinking about light in different ways. Or anything.
2: yeah, yeah, I'm catching what you're throwing. So, <laughs> like with with your with your wedding work and with the documentary you did and maybe future ones like do you do you think only about yourself would you say when you're doing all of your art is it just a purely self-fulfilling thing or do you ever kind of like pull in external opinions and things like that
0: um no I say it's pretty selfish um but I I when I say that I just like I focus so much on how I feel about it uh that I know if I'm moved by it or feel emotional about it in some way, then it's going to move other people too, um, rather than worrying too much about what other people think.
2: So, just to kind of switch gears a little bit, uh, like, I guess with our little wedding bubble that we all kind of live in, like... I feel like maybe you kind of uh, are a little bit on the outside of the bubble and and, in a good way. Like It it doesn't seem to me like, I don't know, you're involved in all of the online communities and things like that. Sort of like James Mose actually. I spoke with him recently and I I kind of compare you two a little bit because you don't seem to be in the mix and that's a good thing. And your online personality uh, was described by a friend of mine who's also a wedding photographer as a bit mysterious. Mm -hmm. Do, Do you feel that that is accurate?
0: Yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess so. Um, My boyfriend isn't on social media at all, so he's even helped me take a step back from it. Like, he doesn't exist on the internet by choice. Like, he just doesn't want to take part. Uh, And so I probably have had that more of an influence to me in the last two and a bit years. Just not, like, I'd say social media is really important for business, but I don't know how much of my personal life needs to be on there. And I try to keep a little bit of a perspective so, on that.
2: So being mysterious, if we're going to go with that word, like is a conscious thing in a way for
0: you? Yeah, I, I yeah, I guess so. I don't feel like our whole lives need to be on the internet. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, you know, I definitely am on the internet. I just probably... I'm an introvert as well. Like I'm, def- like definitely keep things closer to myself rather than putting it out all in the show. So. And
2: and you say you're an introvert, and I kind of think that you are as well. Um, and that that comes from one experience, almost meeting you in Vancouver a couple years. So being an introvert, and how do you how do you connect that to the projects that you select? And what I mean is, do you like the, if we're going to go with the documentary you just created? Do you see yourself a little bit in, in the, the subjects that you're studying or that you're documenting? And is that why do you f- feel you're drawn into those certain specific projects?
0: I guess so, yeah, i haven't thought of it like that. Uh, well, Harold, you know, who the documentary is on, he's 98.
2: So it's tough to see yourself in his shoes too much, but... <laughs>
0: yeah, but, you know, he lives by himself. Um, he's still very independent. Uh, but the reason why I was sort of drawn so much to him is I prefer to spend time with one person rather than a group of people. Like, if there's too much chatter going on in a room, I I just kind of, my head wants to explode. I, I, have, I struggle to have conversation with one person if there's like a billion voices going on
2: <laughs> okay.
0: around me. It's like it's, it's something I really struggle with. Um, so to me, I find I do so much better when it's just one person and I can just focus on them and not My brain wants to fly off, I guess.
2: Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, as you've kind of like risen as an artist, I guess, if you want to put it like that, because you have risen to a point where a lot of people admire what you do and you teach and you do workshops and, and like people come to you a lot. So, I'm not gonna, I'm not saying you're on a pedestal, but I am gonna say like people sort of aspire to kind of get to the level that you're at. So, if people are coming to you and they're, Wanting to do workshops and people ask you to speak at conferences and things like that. Like, what do you think the one message is that people leave your teachings with on a consistent
0: manner? Um, are just a very normal photographer. Uh, I think that like people. I think that's a comment I hear a lot is that, you know, a lot of people do put other photographers on pedestals and that and think that these these almighty, godlike creatures that they're perfect and they only take perfect photos and everything in life is great and, you know, I like to show them that we just, so everything is just the same, you know, like we have the same struggles and that there's no need to put anyone on a pedestal that's unhealthy uh, for anybody to be on a pedestal because there's a lot of pressure um, to maintain or, you know, kind of expectations of that, you know. Um, But, you know, I openly talk about my mistakes and struggles and things I'm going through uh, as an artist and people relate to that and I feel like uh, another thing is that I'm a very quiet photographer and the biggest comment I always receive is um, because I definitely attract more like introverts to my workshops and stuff and to my work as well and they take it as like a like a sigh of relief in a way that it's okay that they're like that. That I feel like a lot of photographers have this pressure to be crazy outgoing um, or put on this show for their clients or be crazy enthusiastic and bubbly and all that. And I'm not that person.
2: Rainbows um, and butterflies.
0: Yeah, and to realize that they don't have to fit into a mold. I think it's a very refreshing thing. I I feel like people walk away with permission to be themselves in the sense of whatever form that is. Like, it's totally okay to be enthusiastic and outgoing, but it's also okay to be quiet and a little bit more chilled out or, um, you know, introverted.
2: So... The mistakes you've learned, do you do you have a few like highlights uh, that you have learned a big lesson and you had a practical outcome come from it? Do you can you can you think of one?
0: Oh, shooting an excessive amount of weddings. Yeah. Like chasing, hustling too hard and chasing things too hard. I guess like I used to shoot sixty weddings a year, and I completely burnt out. Um, completely 100% burnt out.
2: So what was, what was the burnout like? Like, what happened?
0: I sold my house, I broke up with a boyfriend, fiance, gave my dog away, and left the city. What year was that? Uh, 2010.
2: And what city was that?
0: Yes.
2: And you live in New York now, so was that the motivation to <laughs> pack up and go to New York? <laughs> uh,
0: in a way, yeah, I guess. Um, no, so I I was with a guy for about eight years, and we got engaged. And I quickly realized after a few months in, of being engaged that it's not what I wanted. I I had a house, I had a fancy car, I had a dog. Um, I was shooting, you know, booking so many weddings, and everything was on track for the perfect life. And I just, like, I didn't sign up for this, like, it freaked me out, like, it's not what I wanted. I actually remember my sister, my older sister, saying to me one day, are you happy, uh, you always said you're going to go live in New York or live overseas somewhere. Is this really what you want? Because I was obviously in the, you know, the house, the dog and all of that, doing the quick after to settling down. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm happy, I'm happy, this is what I want. And then obviously that kind of played in my mind. For a few weeks and it realized it's not what I wanted, it's and so I ended everything. And first, I moved to Melbourne because I wasn't very confident in you know, when you're with somebody for eight years, that's I left. I moved to Melbourne because all my friends and everything was his life, and I felt like I kind of was left with nothing at the end yeah. of it. Um, like he worked for me as well, he was my second tutor, so. Um, I then moved to Melbourne um, just because I had to escape that life basically I just had to check out um, and do something different like radically different and it was I only lived in Melbourne for six months before I came to New York I only came to New York because I was teaching a workshop here it's a place to do a workshop get to visit um, but it was in the first week I was here I was like I need to move here this is something I need to do and there's a photo on Instagram from 2012, like a ridiculous selfie going, I belong in New York. Uh, and it's funny to look back on it now, because at that time, that was like the most craziest, unrealistic dream. And then I think because I had the confidence to move to Melbourne, I realized I had the confidence to move to New York. And I gave myself like a four-month trial living here. Um, and. I didn't really know anyone in the city when I first got here. Um but I spent like two months living in Bushwick by myself and Bushwick it was definitely even in three years it's changed a bit, a bit, but it's definitely you know a little bit more well now it's kind of like hipster hub, but I feel like three years ago it was even a little bit more of a dodgy area to stay in by yourself being a brand new person to town. But it kind of it forced me out of my comfort zone and you know, I was living by myself for the first time and I just went through this crazy creative spurt in that time. I've never been so creative. And it was like really fulfilling. Just, I think. Cause
2: like, what? Were you painting pictures or what were you. Did you become an illustrator? Like, what kind of creative things were you no, I'm going crazy pictures with?
0: Pictures and writing. And I think it was like the first time ever that I had time to myself to, and I was bored, there was no TV in the apartment, and there was nothing to kind of immediately entertain myself with, so it got to the point of exploring, like, a deep, another part of my creativity, in a way, and so it's like, I was writing, uh, I think when you go through a breakup, you become, you know, you feel this need to, like, vomit all the emotion out of your mouth about what you're going through, so writing, I feel like is it's is a
2: it really sort of therapeutic thing. Um. Well, on the, I'll just jump in there. That, that to me is pretty interesting because like writing is a form of expression and it's another creative channel that, you know, an, an artistic person can easily or not so easily but try to go down. So when you're writing these things, were you just like writing a diary or were you writing like stories or were you writing in, about Harold or like what, what were you writing about?
0: I started a blog. Uh, I don't think it's up anymore. I haven't renewed really it. Um, but it was just, it was called For the Art and Adventure. And it was just sort of talking about the creative process and adventure and all these sort of things I was going through. So it wasn't like a day to day diary or anything, it was more creativity and all that sort of stuff. Um, then I had to go back to Australia because I had a, season, uh, like a summer of weddings to shoot back there. Um, and then it all quickly disappeared. I thought I was going to have that creative insight for the rest of my life. And then,
2: and then weddings whisked it away.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We're getting busy whisked away, you know, getting day to day, you know, editing.
2: So with weddings, like weddings, I mean, you're, you're pretty invested in the wedding world. You have another company, right. Where you're, you're more or less an agent. Is that right?
0: oh yes so after deciding to move to new york i you know being a wedding photographer for that stage it was like eleven, twelve 12 years 11 years um you know 11 years shooting weddings in a country i decided like in australia i decided to start like a photo agency to also because i was kind of like leaving all my second shooters all these people have been working for me it's like all right i'm moving to america bye um But I felt like I could get them work, because they were being trained by me, obviously. Um, And I obviously could get, you know, recommend them to people that were, you know, inquiring with me, so I had a good referral base. Yeah. So I started this agency, and it was always, the people that, the photographers were always people that had worked under me before, like as second Mm shooters or that type of thing. What's it called? Yeah, Weddings. Which is, I'm good friends with um, Whitney Chamberlain, who has Yeah, Weddings USA, and I'll Skype in him with him one day because he was a, kind of like a mentor in a way about me starting this photo agency and he's like we should just call it the same thing as I call it in America and we have this cross world domination thing of of a brand name. I went alright, that sounds cool and so there's a, a Year Weddings USA um, which I'm not really part of and then there's a Year Weddings Australia as such which I run um, but we kind of you know, the year
2: weddings kind of can dominate the world. So this, like this um, project or business or whatever we're going to term it, term it, term it as, uh, it seems to be a little bit uh, more on the entrepreneurial business side of the sphere um, when you compare it to like the artistic side of the equation with the documentary and things like that. So do you feel like that type of uh, business is like a departure from your personality and more business or do you feel like you, you have that business entrepreneurial like vigor um, as much as you have the artistic vigor?
0: Oh, definitely the entrepreneur. I uh, grew up in a restaurant. Um, my parents owned a restaurant. they have been running it for 28 years and my whole life was living at the back of it. So I started my first business when I was six and so I've had a billion businesses since then. Um, like I've been doing sort of freelance, random businesses since I was like, realistically, since I was about 13, 14, um, always scheming to make money, call it boredom of a small town and kids oh, yeah. to get out.
1: I can relate.
2: Um, I can relate.
0: And so, to me, I probably have more of a business brain than I do artistic, I would say. Oh, interesting. But actually, The reason why I think I stuck in weddings for so long, and I I do love weddings, but I also love other types of photography too, is that I enjoy the office days as much as I love the shooting days. Like, and I like that balance of, like, I wouldn't want to be outside shooting every day. I like marketing and I like working on business things too. So it's just like a really rewarding side for me as well.
2: So, I mean, we don't need to like delve into what you're you know, your parents were like per se, but like I, I grew up with entrepreneurial parents as well in a very small town and I know that i I definitely observed what they did growing up um, as entrepreneurs and plucked a few things that I apply to the business today. So do you do you kind of like apply a couple little nuggets that your parents did as entrepreneurs uh, to your own businesses today?
0: Um, the main one I think is just working really long hours. Uh, that's one of the main things.
2: That's what tours definitely do. Yes,
0: <laughs> 18 hours a day. Um, so I, I learned from a very young age the importance of working hard and long hours to achieve what you want. Like my parents started this restaurant, they were about 33, 34 years of age. They had three children under five. Whoa. And they opened a restaurant that was open for 18 hours every day. Holy um, shit. So they're insane in many ways, but they, you know, they didn't go to college or anything. They, you know, to them this is they had to make it work to give, you know, their kids a good life and that to them it wasn't really an option. My mom was a housewife before that and you know, being out of the workforce, it would have been hard to get a job. So, to them it was just this is what needs to be done.
2: Okay, so, well Okay, just to like jump in there. Like with, with a restaurant, I understand long hours and how that works and working hard, I get that. Um, but I'm curious, like when you're a wedding photographer only, not creating documentaries and, and not being a, an agent, uh, what were long hours to you at that point? Like as a wedding photographer, what is a long hour? And I'm not talking about photographing a wedding for 18 hours, but like when you're, when you're grinding it out in front of the computer, like, or shaking hands, like what is working hard? as you interpret it?
0: 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week. Doing what? Editing. (laughs) Back in my busiest time, I was going into the office at 6 in the morning and leaving at 10, 11 at night. And I'm repeating that every day. There was no choice, because you make all these silly decisions, you know, in advance. And the money looks really good. So you're like, yeah, I can do another wedding. I can do another wedding. And then, you know, a year later, in the deep of it, and in crisis in a way like yeah the money is great but sanity is not insanity is not so great as well when you're like prison to your computer yeah you know you could obviously outsource but this is like six years five five years ago so outsourcing wasn't as much of an option okay so
2: i guess what i was curious about like okay that question didn't really fly because it sounds like you've been busy from the get-go, um, in a way, if we're gonna say six years ago was like the peak of the insanity for you. It sounds like you were busy, so I guess working hard did mean editing and you know keeping your clients happy. But what I was, what I thought might have been alluding to a little bit with the answer was like, what sort of marketing things and were you doing, and, and how were you staying busy in that in that way? What were you doing to stay busy?
0: Just keeping my clients happy <laughs> and referrals. Uh, So taking really good care of my clients was, you know, I've never really advertised that much. I haven't advertised at all since I moved to New York. And back in Perth days, maybe done like two or three ads in like the last 13 years. So my focus has always been taking really good care of my clients. And that's been the basis of everything,
1: like delivering
0: images on time and delivering a really high standard and you know,
2: then I their friends and it's great. <laughs> wow. I think, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking about the other conversations I've had with the other presenters and there's like definitely a theme going on here and it's relationships matter. Uh, yes. Why? Why didn't anyone tell us that when we started out?
0: Our relationships <laughs> <laughs> are everything. Like there's one, I remember this, so to kind of, like I started shooting weddings in 2003, but I didn't go full time with it to 2007. I went backpacking in 2006 and came back to Australia with $1,000 to my name. Like, completely broke, but $1,000. And going back to a normal job wasn't an option. I was just, you know, backpacking for a year, all that freedom, and then thinking of having a 9-to-5 job again is like, hell.
2: Have you it's ever stupid. had a 9-to-5 job?
0: Yes. I... From 2004 to 2006. Okay. At the beginning of 2006, I had a full-time job uh, but it was photography related I was a managed a, like a photographic and video library like a stock library I think. Um, but so 2007 is I had a thousand dollars and it had to work and I went full-time from then and I learned very quickly about the importance of relationships and there's one wedding I can link back to I shot in my first year that I'm still shooting their friends. It's all somehow connected to this one client. Like I was just back in Australia shooting a wedding this year, like two weeks ago, and she's somehow connected to that first client. And I've shot through that that one original bride, 15, 20 weddings that they all connected. And you know, obviously my prices went from like...
2: Lower to high.
0: Yeah, like to that I po- I think I charged her two thousand dollars with an album back in two thousand seven,
1: you know, and clients
0: obviously paying quite a few times that now. But the, you know, like if you take care of your clients, even when as your prices move up, they see the value and the growth in you as an artist, then they'll still sign on, which is really nice.
2: Wow. So it sounds like the, the the bullshit world of SEO and social media, is like far less important for you compared to real relationships?
0: Yeah, 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 uh, SEO, I don't even rank fully in the top 100 pages of New York wedding photographer. I haven't really bothered dealing, like even trying with that.
2: Yeah, that's a tough but, one.
0: Yeah, well that was like, <laughs> the hardest one. I kind of feel like I don't even stand a chance, um, but you know, take, uh, you know, I think the most important things in this industry is uh, looking after your friendships you have with other photographers in a very genuine way, like, i.e. real friendship, um, and looking after your clients, and that will get you all the work you ever need. Um, Like, you don't, I don't feel like you need a, maybe when you're starting out, you might need to advertise and focus on SEO, but it's really nice to get your business to a point where you kind of know word-of-mouth referrals.
2: with like with your uh brand and your personality it you seem to me uh as though you do a lot of traveling and destination weddings kind of are your bread and butter um so have you ever like thought about after the destination weddings are over and done with and that facade drifts away what like where do you where's your idea of success with your wedding photography at that point
0: to my idea of success would be to cook dinner every night at home um, and have a normal life. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely, yeah, destination wedding photography is not a great business model. It's fun for a few years to travel the world and do all that, but if you actually want to make money and like think about the rest of your life, there's no real business in it. Just because you spend so much more money when you're away. Like I'm going away next week. they are going to like the Faroe Islands, which is like an amazing place to go and I'm so so stoked um, I'm going there and I got opportunity to shoot a wedding there I bringing my boyfriend with me because I don't want to go by myself um, but his ticket comes out of my pocket um, you know we're making a holiday out of it but I'm going to come back with no money from that job because we'll you know we get a holiday out of it but if that kind of turns into Every few weddings, because I'm too afraid to go somewhere. Not too afraid to go by my, somewhere myself. It's more like it's a safety thing um, and a lonely thing. Like I don't want to spend all my Saturday nights in lonely hotel rooms by myself. But,
2: Dinner for one.
0: Yeah, that's no life either, you know. So, so
2: that do you like? You've been in the game for quite a while, like over ten years, I guess, and you've probably seen trends come and go. Um, on the outskirts, you probably just observed them. You probably didn't get too invested in them. Um, but this destination trend is definitely, uh, you know, everyone wants to be the next rock star photographer and the gateway to do that seems to be the destination weddings, which, I mean, it is a facade in my eyes, but do you kind of like just acknowledge that that is a trend that is happening and you just don't be bothered with it, or do you kind of like dissect trends and try and forecast where you want to position your, your business next?
0: Well, I don't think about it too much, and I just wait for emails to come in. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to get too caught up in trends. Like, I was actually annoyed about the whole Iceland trend becoming a trend because I went to Iceland before it was a trendy, and I absolutely love Iceland, and I hate that it has a stigma to it now, and people roll their eyes when you mention Iceland.
2: Sam, you're preaching to the choir here.
0: It's so sad that it has that (laughs) reputation, and it's just like, it's such an amazing place, and that's why it has got that, but, you know, yeah, it's just like such a weird thing, like, when things kind of get ruined because of eyes rolling. Yeah. Not that you really care, but...
2: Well, we can have a beer about Iceland. I'll tell you what I think about that in <laughs> Stockholm. But I guess with that question, what I was, what I was kind of curious about was like, like how thorough are you about thinking about like external factors and how they affect your own business?
0: Not much, I guess. I just do what I do and happy when another client books me. And uh, I tried Well, now I try to actually think about being at home more and realizing the importance of that, like not shooting as many destination weddings. So I've actually. In a way, I've had to be a little bit more think about what I'm blogging. Because mm-hmm. uh, if people are in destination weddings, you're not going to book any local weddings. You know, and that seems really appealing at times. But when you then aren't known in your own local market anymore, and you know, you want to have a family or you don't want to travel as much, that's really tough because you can't keep being a destination wedding, wedding forever.
2: So, is that why you bought two cats?
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: to, to force you to stay at home more?
0: Yeah, it's working. I feel really bad when I go away. They hate me when I leave. Uh, I feel like I'm <laughs> only redeeming myself after a few days. Um, yeah, and also, they, I feel like the cats are for my boyfriend. <laughs> he's, he's left at home or by himself for weeks on end, and they give, keep him company. So.
2: All right, so with your... Just to go back to the documentary one more time, Like, where are you at with that, and... When will people be able to see it?
0: Uh, I was hoping to have it shown last week, but I'm still in negotiations with some of the historical images, so I'm aiming for the premiere to happen in November, and that way everything will be licensed, because there's obviously a huge proportion of historical footage and images, which cost a fortune,
1: Uh, so it's a lot of
0: negotiations with libraries, Um, so November will
2: be available to senior. So you grew some thick skin, it sounds like, in creating this documentary, um, like dealing with licensing and the business aspect of it, and I imagine, you know, sitting there with the Herald, you you probably had a lot of experiences there, so was there one experience that you can take away that you'll definitely apply to the wedding, and uh, your wedding world?
0: Uh, Patience. Learning to listen more, that's a big one, I think, the listening. Um, yeah, Harold taught me to slow down and to listen in a very genuine, real way rather than thinking you're listening and your mind is racing at a million miles an hour. Um, I feel like, it. I think I will pay attention to what my clients are saying more than I have
2: in the past. Interesting. So Harold identified this with you, and I guess you spent a lot of hours with him. So when you heard that from him, you know that's a pretty that's a personal uh, observation that he made of you. So how do you how did you interpret that? Were you defensive like you were with the um, the people who were critiquing your work when you were making the documentary, or were you do you feel like you kind of opened up as a person through this documentary?
0: Definitely opened up. Um, Definitely learning the process of asking for help as well because I think I can do everything myself or I'm a perfectionist and and the slight loner, introvert I am just want to do it all by myself, but I'm learning that that can't, doesn't happen or doesn't work well. So I guess I've also, you know, like seeking help when needed and... And also like with my teaching uh, like mentoring other photographers um, I felt like being, putting their position again, it gave me perspective on how they're feeling and that it can be a little bit more uh, I can empathise potentially where they're at a little bit more Um, sometimes it's easy to kind of go you just need to do this, this, this and this to get to where you need to be and it's so obvious to me but to kind of slow it down a bit for them and kind of, uh, I guess, yeah, understand how they're potentially feeling of overwhelmed and scared and all of that too.
2: So Patience in Relationships by Sam Blake.
0: Yep. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Alright, so Stockholm. What do you know about Stockholm?
0: I've been to Stockholm. I was there a few years ago. i uh, been to Gotland. Um, really liked both places. What's the, um, when
2: you when you get to Stockholm? What's the one thing that you need to do immediately, having been there before?
0: I don't. Oh, I really like that park. Uh, it's like a nursery. Uh, it's out of town a little bit. Um, it's like an orchard or something. And think you catch a ferry there or something. And
2: out of Stockholm? Yeah. I wonder it's if it's amazing. I
0: think, uh, I think
2: actually, it might be to Gordon, but I'm not sure. I
0: have no idea. Anyways, going <laughs> and it's like a. A nursery-type orchardy place, and you go buy your lunch in true Swedish manner of putting things on a tray like Ikea, Um, and then you go sit out in the orchard and eat, like a beautiful lunch, and that's something I really want to do again.
2: Well, I hope you will be able to do that in the October weather, which is normally not so happy and sunny, because it sounds very sunny, what you're describing.
0: (laughs) I was there in July, so it's a bit warmer, but I'm definitely a cold weather person that's why I like I do I'm very excited about coming to Sweden because I definitely suit cool weather than hot
2: I can relate to that so with okay one more question about the event like you've been around the block you've been to conferences and gatherings and and all that Um, what do you think what would be the thing you would have told yourself as an attendee when you were going to the first event that you went to
0: don't be so afraid to talk to people Yeah, <laughs> and, and that their speakers or the credit centers aren't that scary. They're just normal people. I remember back when I first used to attend things, I was like so shy and nervous and all of that. Um, I would never put my hand up and ask questions. And I'm friends with a lot of or oh, no yeah, friends or close acquaintances with everyone that's speaking, I think. And they're all very lovely, lovely people and all would I'm sure love to sit down and chat and that and it's not an intimidating process and you don't need to lose your cool when you're chatting or anything. I used to be so scared. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right on. All right, cool, Sam. Um uh, that's that. Thanks a lot for uh you know, slicing this little hour into your schedule. I know you're pretty busy, so you're off to the Faroe Islands next week, you said. Yeah, Sunday. Oh, that's exciting! I'm so so jealous.
0: I got a week there, and then I've got three days in Copenhagen, so I'm looking forward to exploring well, it. So. I hope
2: the weather's on your side, and you it's not windy as hell, because it can be brutal in that part of the world.
0: Oh, I learned all about wind in Iceland. I robbed my car. Yeah. Uh, last year, that was fun. Oh Jesus! <laughs> Thanks to the wind.
2: Story for another day.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
2: All right, cool, Sam. Thanks a lot for this.
0: You're welcome. Safe, uh, to uh, you. safe
2: travels, and take care.
0: Thank you.
1: Bye bye. And uh, that's episode eight of the Way Up North podcast. So good to have Sam joining us in Stockholm in two months. Thanks to Coden Hustle for sponsoring this episode. WayUpNorth10 is the code if you want a 10% discount on their products. And thanks also to Jeremy Lim for the music in this podcast. As usual, you can find us on the website uh, wayupnorth.co and in all social medias at wayupnorth2015. Next up in a couple of weeks is the Christmas, so hopefully you'll tune in then as well. Talk soon!